Amen. Amen. So good to reflect on the faithfulness of God and to even sing a song that has shaped God's people for years and years and years. Well, church, it is a joy now to turn our ear to the Word of God. I want to invite you to grab your copy of God's Word and open up to Psalm chapter 19. Psalm 19, as we continue in our series, Shaped by the Psalms. This is our third week. The first week we looked at Psalm 1, blessed is the man. There is a blessed man and the wicked man, and we can choose our path, and oh, that by God's grace we would choose to walk on his path and walk in his ways. Last week we looked at Psalm chapter 16 and talked about being shaped by joy, to having a rightly ordered love within our souls where we would love and value and treasure Jesus supremely over and against all else, and that would shape the way that we would live. And this week we'll look at Psalm 19, shaped by revelation. There are certain experiences that we have that can dramatically change who we are. There are certain things that we can see or hear that leave us forever transformed. Something like seeing the Grand Canyon, seeing something so massive and beyond us to quickly remind us how finite and small we are. I don't need the Grand Canyon to know how small I am, but maybe for some of you, it's helpful. We see something massive, and it's grander, and it changes us. It helps us see how small we are. Uh, maybe it's something like seeing Star Wars for the first time. I am not a super Star Wars guy, but I think we probably have at least one Star Wars fan in the room. Okay, their hands are going up everywhere, okay? Um, the thrill of adventure. It's my understanding that in one of the opening scenes when I, whatever this thing is called, uh, comes onto the screen, it's like a super extended scene and, and people in uh, theaters all across the nation stood up and actually erupted in applause when they saw it for the first time because there was nothing like the special effects and whatever Star Wars was doing in that moment. It left them forever changed. Uh, maybe it's seeing the life of a hero, like Hugh Jackman in X-Men. You can also call him Huge Jackman, okay? Uh, I remember the first time I saw that, when he comes up out of the water in that scene, and I was like, that. I want to look like that guy, right? And so that whole summer, I ate broccoli and chicken and got up and swam in the pool, and at the end of summer, I looked nothing like him. But seeing it changed me. I wanted something different. There are all kinds of experiences. Maybe for you, it was when you met your spouse, and there was just something extraordinary about that person that changed you, and you wanted to know what was so incredible and beautiful and wonderful about that person. Maybe for you, it's when a, a child was born, and you saw the beauty and fragility all wrapped into one bundle of joy. Uh, I know for me, it was when I came to understand the concept of biblical theology, where you can trace various themes all the way from the book of Genesis 
through the book of Revelation, and you can see how God in his wisdom and creativity and beauty and sovereignty sewed things together all throughout redemptive history, how he did something earlier on, and then as you watch it just be transformed throughout the book, it's constantly being built upon and grown. I remember for me that changed the way I understood God's word. Maybe it's when you use a gift that the Lord has given you and people respond to that gift and you can give glory to the Lord. Maybe it's just somebody that you know. I remember my freshman year at Palm Beach Atlantic University, I had a professor, his name was Randy Richards, and Randy was brilliant, and he was a tremendous professor, a gifted communicator. Uh, It was a 400-level class that I ended up in my freshman year. It was a big accident, but a happy accident, Uh, and I had to go in and sit in his study one day and talk with him, and I just remember him sitting there, knowing who he was, and he was so humble and gentle, and kind, and loving, and I thought, man, I want to be like that guy. Uh, Maybe it was the death of a loved one, and that experience left you transformed, recognizing that life is limited, and there is a definite expiration date for each of us. Friends, the reality is we cannot help it. Simply by seeing, by hearing, by experiencing brings about transformation. I think that's what we see here in Psalm chapter 19. As we hear God's voice, we should respond in humility. As we see God, as we come to know him, as he reveals himself to us through his world and through his word, we should respond with humility. Look with me, please, at Psalm chapter 19. We'll read the whole chapter. God's word says this. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned in keeping them. There is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord my rock, and my redeemer. 
this psalm begins by celebrating the transcendent creator of all things. It's as if we zoom out as far as possible and we are just beginning to fix our eyes on something beautiful. All of creation declares the transcendent glory of God. As we look at all things created by him, they are exclaiming something about him. Verse one says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The first exhortation in this passage is to listen to God's voice in creation. Listen to God's voice in creation for all of creation is exclaiming something about who God is. When we see the vastness of the ocean, we can see God's grandeur. We recognize that there is no one like him and nothing else to compare with him, that he spoke and this came to be. Miles and miles and miles and depths and depths of ocean and we see the bigness of God. We see a raging waterfall like the great Niagara Falls where you look at 186,000 tons of water crashing over the precipice every minute and you think surely this can't keep going again and again and again and yet it does with the same force year after year after year and you see God's power. We see massive mountains and we can see God's majesty. We see the rising and the setting of the sun and we're reminded of God's faithfulness. And then to think that God doesn't just paint new sunrises and new sunsets each day, but he never stops painting them because the sun is always rising and always setting somewhere in the world. His creation declares his faithfulness. We see flowers and we see God's beauty. We see a platypus, and we see God's creativity and probably his humor. Look at that thing. <laughs> we see a prowling lion, and we see God's ferocity. And then we see the way of a parent with their child, and we see God's gentleness. We see how everything in all places all the time is working exactly and precisely according to the way it was designed and we see God's purpose. Brothers and sisters, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. And the skies above and all of creation is declaring something about who our God is. Creation is continuously telling us there is a God, the maker of heaven and earth. There is a beautiful, powerful, creative God who showers the world with beauty and glory from his fullness. God is using any and every means available to proclaim to humanity that he is God and there is none like him. That he is the God who created it all and he is the God who sustains it all, that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It is a voiceless voice that we can hear with our ears. Everybody got that? That's why this passage is a little confusing. Poetry can be that way. It is a voiceless 
voice that we can hear with our ears is what Psalm 19 is telling us. All of creation constantly declaring the glory of God. Now, when I say listen to God's voice in creation, I want to be very careful because I don't mean that God is going to unveil some kind of hidden mystery or his secret will for your life through creation. That we shouldn't expect to, when forced with the decision between, between taking this job and that job, go out and say, that sunset is telling me that job and not that one. That's not what we mean. Scripture is clear that creation tells us something about God, something about who he is. Verses five and six give us a specific example. It says, in them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The psalmist zooms in here on one example of creation and what it teaches us about who God is. He says, think about the sun. It always rises and it always falls. It always runs its circuit. It follows the course that was designed for it and intended by its maker. So as powerful as the sun may be, as strong as its heat is, and as bright as its light is, it has a master, and it follows his sovereign reign over all. Being reminded of God's faithfulness and his sovereign and providential control over all that he has made. It's a picture of who the Lord is, that he rules over it all, and that nothing escapes from his gaze. Nothing exists apart from his bringing it into existence, and nothing continues to exist unless the Lord sustains it with his power. These first six verses lay out for us the transcendent glory of God. He is over all and above all, and creation is pointing us to consider who he is. In Romans 1, Paul is reflecting on this concept. In verses 19 through 20, he says this, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Paul says, you want to know there's a God? Just open your eyes. All of humanity knows this. All of humanity understands this. And if they deny it, it's not because they don't really believe it's there. It's because they're suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness. Because when we consider creation, we cannot but help understand that there is a maker and he is a powerful creator of all, that everything else is creation, but he alone is creator. We listen to God's voice in creation in his world as we see the things that he has made and it helps us to know who he is. But then in verses seven through 11 of this passage, the psalmist takes a very different angle. While our unimaginably great God has revealed himself through creation and while creation does put on display his eternal power and divine nature, God reveals himself to us in yet a more personal way. It's where the transcendent becomes imminent, 
where the divine majesty stoops down to commune with creatures of dust, where we can come face to face with our creator and the imminent glory of God is seen. It's one thing to know someone from a distance, to admire them from afar, to see their work and to marvel at it, but to really know them, to have an intimate and profound relationship with that person is something different altogether. So while creation reveals much about who Almighty God is, our glorious God is not done with his self-disclosure. There is a greater revelation, a deeper revelation, a more intimate disclosure of who he is, and it's found in his word. In the books that are open on our laps, or God forbid, on your phone open right now, God has disclosed himself to us. We listen to God's voice in creation, but we listen to God's voice in his word. Right here, in the pages of this book, God declares to us his very heart. More than a transcendent, far-off beauty, God invites us into the beauty of who he is and tells us what he loves. God is not hiding from us, friends. He is not playing hide-and-go-seek. Instead, he's playing show-and-tell. God is trying to reveal himself to us because he wants us to know him, because he knows that the more we know him, the more we love him, the more we trust him, the more we enjoy him. So he's showing us his glory and he's telling us of his heart. He wants to relate with us. Verses seven through 11 tell us much about the word of God and his self-disclosure here. They say this, the law of the Lord is perfect. Listen to these words, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, and the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together as we come to his word and as we see him we know him we see what he's done throughout redemptive history we hear who he's telling us that he is we come to understand his promises and know all that he says he's going to do and when we see god in his word something transformative happens in our souls we are shaped by revelation. All of these terms in verses 7 through 11, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the rules of the Lord, all of these are pointing to the same reality, and it's right here in these pages, God's self-disclosure. As we come to this living word, we see the glory of God. We learn his heart, and we're invited into a deeper relationship with our maker. So what do we know about the word of God? And what does God's word do in our souls as we embrace it? These verses tell us much that we can know about God's word and what happens when we embrace the truth from his word. So first, what we know. 
we know this, looking at verse 7, his law is perfect. It is blameless. It is faultless. It does not have any blemish or imperfection. The law of the Lord is perfect. Continues, the testimony of the Lord is sure. God's word is sure. It is faithful. It will not change. It does not contradict itself, and it is discernible. We can understand it, and God will never change his word. Though heaven and earth pass away, his word will remain. We even are like grass, but his word is like granite. It will remain forever. His word is faithful. Next, it declares that God's word is right. All that God commands is good and worthy of approval. All that God's word requires of us is for our ultimate good and joy. His word is perfect. His word is sure. His word is right. His word is pure. It is unmixed with evil or error. It was authored by a perfect God and therefore is free of error. His word is clean, undefiled, not polluted by mankind over the years. It is preserved and enduring. And finally, in verse nine, this is told, we're told that the rules of the Lord are true. There is no falsehood. God always tells the truth. Friends, the reality is there are many things that we can fill our minds with. There is no shortage of content for us to consume, but here is the point. There is nothing in all of creation that is like the word of God. No show, no movie, no podcast, no book, no blog, no nothing is likened to the revelation of God in the pages of Holy Scripture. Nothing is like the word of God and nothing will benefit you like the word of God. Nothing is like the word of God and nothing will benefit you like the word of God. I love what one theologian says about this. He says, God understands you better than anyone else. He knows how people get to, to be the way they are and how they are affected by their surroundings. God understands societies and groups perfectly. God knows all facts about how the world works. God knows the future and how everything will come out in the end. God is wiser than any wise writer. God is more caring than any counselor. God is more creative than any poet or artist. It simply stands to reason that what God says will be more useful to us than what anyone else in the universe has to say. Not to sit at his feet and soak our minds with his wisdom is sheer craziness, if not suicidal. Sheer craziness, if not suicidal. His word is perfect, sure, right, true, clean. There is nothing like the word of God. And as we come to understand what God's word is, this passage also declares to us how God's word can benefit our souls. 
What does God's word do, not just when we read words on a page, but when by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, we embrace the truth of what God has said in his word? This passage tells us that God's word gives to us life and wisdom and joy. When we embrace the truth of God's word, he gives to us life, wisdom, and joy. In Matthew 4, 4, Jesus reminds us that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It is the word of God that gives life to our souls. It's what the passage declares in verse seven, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving, revitalizing, giving life to the soul. It's true in conversion and it's true in perseverance. God's word gives us life. God's word gives us life. We know in the book of Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. And in Romans 10, Paul says that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved, we'll have eternal life. But he continues and he asks a series of questions by saying, okay, but how are they gonna believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they gonna hear about him unless someone tells them? The reality is general revelation, what we know about God through creation is only sufficient to condemn us because it declares to all of humanity that there is a God that exists and we are accountable to him. But we need something more, the special revelation of God, his self-disclosure, if we're ever to find our way to God and if God would ever draw us to himself, he will do it by his word, by the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ in hearing his word, he brings life. This was true about Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer. In 1505, Martin Luther entered the monastery to live as a monk. He was ordained as a priest in the Roman Catholic Church in 1507. In 1508, he began teaching theology, and in 1512, he was awarded his doctorate in theology. But by Luther's own testimony, catch this, it wasn't until 1519 that Luther was truly born again. This guy was a monk, a priest, had his doctorate of theology, and by his own testimony does not believe that he genuinely knew Jesus until 14 years after he became a monk. Up until that year, 1519, he hated the term, the righteousness of God. His conscience tormented him. Even though he lived as a monk and had given himself to serving the Lord, he could not rid his guilty conscience of the sinfulness when he considered the Lord's righteousness. He says this, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemy, blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. And so what did Luther do? He kept coming back to the word of God. 
He says that he beat importunately, that is again and again, consistently time and time again upon Paul wanting to know what he meant in the book of Romans, that the righteous shall live by faith, the righteousness of God. He says this, at last by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely that in it, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written. He who through faith is righteous shall live. In other words, Luther understood the concept of justification by faith, that it is not by works by any man so that no one can boast before God, but it is only because of what Jesus Christ has done. His perfect righteousness can become our righteousness. In the great exchange, we can give him all of our sinfulness and we can take on his righteousness. We can be robed in it so that when the Father sees us, he only sees Jesus and his perfect life. It was in that moment that Luther truly understood the gospel and that he didn't have to earn his way to heaven, but that Jesus Christ had finished the work in his death and resurrection. He says, here I felt that I was altogether born again and I had entered paradise itself through open gates. It was by hearing the voice of God in his word and his word brought him life. The same is true in my testimony. Grew up knowing and hearing all about the Lord and I'm not sure at what point the Lord had me, but I know as I look at spiritual checkpoints in my life, they were all about the word of God, be it a devotional at night with my mom in my room when I was seven or when I was older in college and I was sitting in a room with 12,000 pastors and leaders and the guy who got up and spoke just read two passages, Ephesians 2 and Romans 5 and hearing the gospel, hearing the word of God brought about transformation in my soul, it brought about life. The word of God is not just effective in bringing about conversion in giving spiritual life, it's also useful for sustaining the lives of our souls. It revives the soul, is what the passage says. The scriptures are instrumental in helping us to persevere in the faith. There's a peculiar passage in 1 Timothy chapter four, verse 16, it says this, as Paul is writing to Timothy, he says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Just a little bit earlier in the context of the passage, the hearers are the saints in the church. And Paul is telling him to keep faithfully presenting the word of God because there is a saving effect on both Timothy and his hearers as the word of God is proclaimed. Brothers and sisters, that means that gathering together around the proclamation of the word of God is not just about helping us to grow in Christ. It's also about helping us to persevere in Christ. Our regular faithful gathering around the proclamation of God's word sustains us and helps us to walk faithfully. Gathering together is a big, big deal. We feed our physical bodies with physical bread and we feed our souls on the word of God that points us to the bread of life. 
Just as our bodies would shrivel up and die without food, so too our souls will shrivel up and die without the steady nourishment of God's word. I love what Matt Smethurst says about this. He says, I don't remember 99% of the meals I've eaten, but they've kept me alive. God uses faithful, forgettable sermons to beautify his bride. And all the preachers said, amen, right? Faithful, forgettable sermons to beautify his bride, a steady diet on the word of God, being week in and week out, nourished in the truth of God's word. It brings life and it sustains spiritual life. Do we really believe that God's word does such a work in our souls? Because if we did, it would probably change the frequency or intensity regularity with which we come and we listen to his voice. Do we believe that through these words, the Holy Spirit does a miraculous and a glorious work in our souls? Not only would it lead to a high view of coming to God's word, but it would also lead to a high view of biblical preaching and being regularly gathered together in his presence. Brothers and sisters, nothing is like the word of God, and nothing will satisfy us like the word of God. So God's word brings us life, and God's word also brings us joy. God's word gives us joy and wisdom. We're going to go back to that. Sorry, my notes were all a bit disheveled. God's word gives us wisdom, okay? God's word gives us life, and God's word gives us wisdom, The passage here continues. It says it revives the soul, and then it continues in verse seven. It makes wise the simple. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. Folly is bound up in our hearts, and the word of God must give light to darkness, the darkness that is in our foolish hearts. As we read earlier in Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. When we live by our own wisdom and do what is right in our own eyes, we are walking in the way of the fool. As we've said earlier in this series, we naturally gravitate towards that which is easy, toward the broad path, toward the path that many people are walking on, toward the path that has instant satisfaction and quick gratification. But all of these things are condemned in the scriptures and they're shown to be foolish simple-minded, and lacking eternal perspective. It is only the word of God that enables us to see with the eyes of our hearts and find light in the midst of darkness. Kevin DeYoung is helpful here. He says this, Scripture does not give exhaustive information on every subject, but in every subject on which it speaks, it only says what is true. And in its truth, We have enough knowledge to turn from sin, find a savior, make good decisions, please God, and get to the root of our deepest problems. Scripture doesn't tell us everything we may want to know about everything, but it tells us everything we need to know about the most important things. It gives us something that the internet with all its terabytes of information never could, wisdom. 
the purpose of Holy Scripture is not ultimately to make you smart or make you relevant or make you rich or get you a job or get you married or take away all your problems or tell you where to live. No, the aim of Scripture is that you might be wise enough to put your faith in Christ, be saved from your sin, and ultimately enjoy God forever. Scripture gives us life. And scripture alone can give us the very wisdom of God. Third, scripture gives us joy. The word of God brings us joy. As we see here again in the passage, it revives the soul, it makes wise the simple, and in verse eight, it rejoices the heart. Brothers and sisters, turning away from sin brings maximum joy. That is not what sin tells us. Sin tells us if you really want to experience joy, then you have to come here and dance with me. But rather, we understand from God's word that we will only find true joy and live the abundant life when we are putting sin to death and delighting ourselves in the Lord. Oh, what it would be to have a life that is free from bondage to temptation, being truly free from sin, having God-given mastery over our desires and urges, walking in obedience, not being weighed down by guilt and shame, to have an assurance of our relationship with our heavenly Father, to know that he's pleased with us, to enjoy the blessing of unhindered relationship with him and peace with others so far as it depends on us, to live a life doing only what is honorable, just, true, and beautiful. This is the abundant life that is ours in Christ. This is the life that God holds out to us in the name of Jesus and with the full assurance of his resurrection power to walk in such a way. Because God's word is perfect, sure, right, clean, and true, it gives us wisdom life, and joy. And when we have embraced it, and when we enjoy these blessings flowing unmitigated into our lives, then we, just like David, can say that his word is more to be desired than gold, verse 10, even much fine gold. That it's sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honey comb. That there is nothing like the word of God and that nothing will benefit us like his word. There is nowhere else you can go to know the Lord and to know his ways and to have the help you need to walk in them. To conclude briefly with verses 12 through 14, how do we respond when we hear God's voice in the world, when we hear God's voice in his word, when we understand that it brings to us life, wisdom, and joy, we respond in humility. Verses 12 through 14, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. How do we respond in humility? We reflect on our sins rely on his forgiveness, and run to him 
for help. Reflect on our sins, rely on his forgiveness, and run to him for help. As we come to God's word and we're confronted with his beauty and his holiness, we're also confronted with our sinfulness. And so we see our hidden faults. This is what he cries out, who can discern his errors? We are so sinful, we don't even know the depths of our sin. All we know is that when we come face to face with God and his word, we are so unlike him. And so we ask that the Lord would declare us innocent of hidden faults as we reflect on our sins, not just the hidden ones, but also our presumptuous sins. The very things we know God has commanded us not to do, and yet we enter in with a high and rebellious hand and we say, I'm going to do it anyway. But brothers and sisters, as we reflect on our sins, we don't wallow there in misery and shame. No, we run to him for forgiveness. We rely on his forgiveness. We ask that he would declare us innocent. How can he do such a thing? How can a holy God declare someone who is guilty innocent? Because of Christ. Because of what Jesus has done, as we rely fully on his finished work, we can experience the forgiveness of the Lord through any and all sin that we do against him. Only by the blood of Jesus can we be blameless and innocent of great transgression, as he says in verse 13. And so we run to him for help. In hope and certainty of forgiveness, we go to him and we ask him to keep us from sin. We ask him for protection from sin's domination. We ask him to change our thoughts and desires. We let him be our rock and our redeemer, the one who saves us and the one who strengthens us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are God Almighty who has not hidden himself from us but you are God Almighty who has revealed himself to us. God, thank you. Thank you for the beauty of this world and for the glory of your word. Father, I pray that we as individuals, that we as a people would continue to come to your word for life, for wisdom, for joy that we would be shaped by your word more than any other source in our lives. God, that we would long to meet with you in the pages of this book and that each time we open it, you would meet with us and so change us. God, give us ears to hear the voiceless voice of creation and eyes to see your beauty and glory in all that you've made and in all that you said. We pray it in Christ's name, amen.